Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, church. And as we uh, are gathered together this morning, we're continuing to look at the book of Ruth. We're looking at the book of Ruth, so if you want to go ahead and turn there now, uh, this would be a great time for you to do that. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, uh, and some of you who've been here the last couple weeks, you're noticing a pattern. It was Ruth 1, and then it was Ruth 2, and now Ruth 3. Bet you can't guess what we're looking at next week on Christmas Eve. Second hesitations, that's exactly right, Mike Guess. All right, guys, so you got your Bible, you're looking at Ruth chapter 3, but uh, about three years ago, my family and I moved here, and when we did, we moved from a place where it didn't rain that much, and we moved to a place here where it seems like it rains a little bit more uh, than it does in the deserts of southern Utah. And so we got here, and there was a tree down in the front yard, and I cut it all up, and I thought, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just drove my truck up to the tree and just loaded stuff in the back of the truck, that would be so much easier. This is like March, April-ish. Well, I no sooner pull off the pavement than my axles meet the ground as the tires sink up to the center of the hubcaps in this very wet Kentucky soil. Well, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. It's a four-wheel drive, but there's certain things that even four-wheel drive is not going to get you out. And so I did what every self-respecting American male would do. I immediately burst into tears. No, I'm kidding. No, I went and I I was going to call a tow service. And as I'm dialing the number, I hear this honking from the front yard. And I'm like, what's going on? So I walk out, and this guy has got the truck that my truck wishes it was. And he's got a chain that I'm pretty sure was used to hold the anchor on a battleship. And he says, do you need some help? And I said, absolutely. And in five minutes, my truck was out and back on the road with a significant portion of the soil uh, with it. But hey, I was grateful to my neighbor, and that was the first time I've got to meet him. He still thinks I'm incompetent. He's probably right. <laughs> Nonetheless, I had a fix. I was, I was in a fix. I had a problem. I had a truck that was not what, doing what trucks were supposed to do, and it needed help. That's exactly what we find ourselves looking at in the book of Ruth. We've got a situation here where Ruth and Naomi have had nothing but trouble, it seems like, in chapter one, right? Y'all remember chapter one? You remember everything that was going on? Husbands have died. There was a famine that kicked it all off. Then husbands died. Then they've got this long journey back. And now you've got Naomi, who's just a mess, and Ruth, who is separated from everything that she knows except for Naomi. And it's just, it's been difficult. And then in chapter two, you have this glimmer of hope because by God's grace, Ruth ends up in a field of somebody who could help out. And that's, that's pretty impressive. It's pretty important. And so week one, we talked about the fact that, and guys, this may not work. There it is. Uh, Ruth one talked about the fact that we were looking at faithful love, how even in the midst of those difficulties, God was being faithful to Ruth and Naomi. And then in chapter two, last week, we saw his providential care uh, for them. And that providential care is really an important thing, but, but it didn't solve the problem. What we saw in chapter two is Ruth and Naomi have got some food now, Right? They, they've, got, they've got the ability to eat, to feed themselves, but that's not long-term security. 
The, the gleaning season is only gonna take place for a short time there in the barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and then what happens next? And that's the question that seems to be consuming Naomi's mind. As Naomi is looking at this situation, she's like, okay, we've had nothing but trouble, but we knew it, even though she didn't, that God's faithful love was present through all of that. They've seen God's providential care, but Naomi says there's got to be something else. And so she says, what we need, what we need is redemption. We find ourselves in a situation that we are unable to get out of ourselves and what we desperately need is redemption. Uh, you guys are gonna have to advance the slides up, he- up there. The, the clicker's not working down here. We need redemption is the issue that's at stake. That's true for you and I as well, is it not? What do we think about when it comes to Christmas? We had this conversation at my house recently, and, and the presents seem to be the first thing that everybody thinks of when it comes to Christmas. I don't know if it's the same at your house. But when we think about Christmas, what we need to understand is this is fundamentally an act of redemption. This is the point at which God himself comes down and says, these people need what they cannot provide for themselves. I'm going to provide it. Well, that's where we find that Ruth and Naomi, they're in need of redemption. They're not thinking spiritually, they're thinking physically. In that day and age, that culture, they're not gonna be able to provide for themselves unless somebody redeems them. That's what we pick up in chapter three. Look at verse one with me. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants this evening, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So Naomi's been thinking. She thinks to herself, hmm, this is working out. We saw that little matchmaking glimmer in her eye last week in chapter two. And now she's thinking ahead. She's like, hey, we need redemption. We've got to have a long-term plan. We've got to have security. And she says, Boaz can be that. Boaz can be that redemption for us. And she uses the word rest. Shouldn't I find rest for you? The the Hebrew there is the idea of a home. Shouldn't I find a home for you? Shouldn't I find a place of rest for you? And that is what Naomi's looking for. And that's what she says Boaz could provide that. You've already got an in. You've already got a connection. In the Christmas season, it's become almost a cliche, a little bit of a joke, just how busy we get ourselves this time of year. Would anybody care to testify this morning about a lack of rest at your house in the midst of the season of redemption? There's a testimony. Right, when, we, when we're in Christmas, a lot of times we end up getting so hectic, so crazy, so busy, right? I did something that I do not normally do, all right? Now, my wife is a saint. You know that because she's been married to me for 18 years. That takes a special person to be able to do that. But beyond that, every Christmas, you know what she does? She does the, she does the shopping, like, like she does the shopping for the gifts and everything and the kids will ask me, dad, what are we getting for Christmas? And I look at them, I'm like, I'm gonna be as surprised on Christmas morning as you are, right? This year I thought, my wife is six months pregnant, right? 
we're, we're living in a house that we're, we're not quite finished with a lot of projects. By we, I mean me. And you know what? I'm going to take part of this load off of her shoulders. I'm going to get the stocking stuffers. Me being the genius I am, I decided to do that on Saturday at Walmart. I called my wife halfway through my expedition, and I said, this is the last time I try to do this on a Saturday at Walmart. She said, are you feeling the Christmas spirit yet? Well, church, are you feeling the Christmas spirit yet? Have your preparations for the holiday gotten you to the point where you are at rest, where you are at peace, where you are ready to celebrate the birth of your Savior, the one who comes and who gives rest to his people in his redemption of them? or not. Naomi and Ruth find themselves in that situation. They need rest. They need that redemption. They need something to be done for them that they cannot do for themselves. And that's the, that's the important thing to recognize. Look at, look at the advice that Naomi gives Ruth. In verse three, wash, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man, Boaz, know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Now, in the history of head-scratching plans, this is the most head-scratchiest of them. Hold on a second, Naomi. Exactly what do you think you're doing here? Exactly what are you trying to accomplish with this? What she's trying to accomplish is to help her and help Ruth and help Boaz see the reality of their situation. The reality of their situation is not only do they need redemption, but Ruth and Naomi together, and Ruth in particular by herself, they have nothing to offer for that redemption. They have nothing going for them in terms of what they can bring to the table. In that day, love and marriage was not so much an issue of feelings. It wasn't so much an issue of, I really like this guy or I really like this girl. It was more an issue of this match makes sense because of what she brings to the table and what I bring to the table. Well, if this match, if, if this goes away, Naomi wants it to go with Boaz marrying Ruth, Na Ruth brings nothing to the table. She's got nothing to offer. She's a foreigner, right? Her dad doesn't even know where she's at, let alone is able to provide any sort of dowry for her. Not only that, but you have this situation where she's a Moabite. And she is, by genetic heritage, she's excluded from the assembly of Israel to the 10th generation, so you have the potential that if, if Boaz were to say yes to this union, he's marrying somebody who brings nothing to the table financially, brings nothing to the table culturally. As a matter of fact, it's the strangest thing in the world that you would have a field worker think that she might be able to marry the field owner. There are all sorts of cultural, religious, and economic barriers that say this match isn't going to work. And Naomi recognizes that. And so she orchestrates this situation. She puts a plan forward that just acknowledges the reality. Ruth, you've got nothing. If you go to Boaz during the day in front of everybody, this is, this is a society without privacy, 
right? If you go to Boaz during the day in front of everybody and you try to make this case for why he should redeem you, why he should marry you, everybody in town's gonna laugh at him and laugh at you. More likely than laugh, they're gonna run you out of town. So this is something because you bring nothing to the table, there's nothing culturally acceptable about this potential union, we've gotta do it in secret. And you've got to go and you've got to meet this man in the cover of darkness where nobody else can see so that you can acknowledge how absolutely dependent you are on him, that you bring nothing to this. Now, there's a lot of innuendo in this text. And scholars have debated whether Naomi intends one thing or another thing or this thing or that thing. But what I do know is we know enough about Ruth's character and we know enough about Boaz's character to trust that whatever Naomi's intentions are, they're probably going to come through this very well. And sure enough, that's what happens. So Ruth hears this advice, or rather this plan, and so she says, I'll do everything that you say. I'll do everything that you say. Okay, Naomi, you say that I bring nothing to the table. You say I've got nothing to offer in this union. You say I've got nothing to offer for my redemption. You're right. Brothers and sisters, are we there? If Christmas is a time when we start thinking about redemption, are you and I there? Or do we think that somehow we're bringing something to the table for Jesus? Do you think that you and I are providing something that Jesus desperately needs when we come to him for redemption. Is this like, you know, hey, precious Jesus, meek and mild, right? Laid in the manger, coming to die. Do we see ourselves like the wise men bringing our gold and our frankincense and our myrrh? Saying, hey, we're bringing something to this relationship. The song, The Little little Drummer Boy, are we even that kid, right? You guys have seen all the memes about Mary, how much she must have hated The Little Drummer Boy, right? I'm glad that's not in the Bible because I would not want anybody thinking that's the appropriate way to greet a newborn, right? But we don't bring anything. I really like um, history and I like reading old uh, dead guys theology. Uh, And one of those old dead guys is a guy named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon said this about redemption. He said, we bring nothing to redemption except the sin that makes it necessary. We bring nothing to redemption. It is not in Jesus's best interest to redeem us because in redeeming us, there's an acknowledgement of our sin as being the thing that makes that redemption necessary. Ruth brings herself washed, perfumed, dressed up, and nothing else. We don't even get to bring that. Ephesians 2 tells us that you and I are dead in our sins and our trespasses. You and I are dead in our sins and our trespasses. What does something dead bring to the relationship? Nothing. So we need redemption. We're in desperate need of it, right? But we are not able to offer anything for it. We're in desperate need of redemption and we can't do anything to get it. Guess what? 
This helps us understand just how scandalous redemption is. Redemption is scandalous. Naomi comes up with a plan that to our modern ears, conditioned as they are on primetime television and HBO series, a plan that to us just sounds scandalous. And that plan's got nothing on what God did by sending his son. The message of Christmas, the message of redemption, it's a scandal, right? How fair is it that we deserve death and Jesus deserves life and in redemption, we get life and he gets death? That's not fair and yet it's reality. How how fair is it that we get what we don't deserve and Jesus gets what he doesn't deserve and yet God calls that good and he calls it redemption. This is what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel, that you and I would receive Christ's life and he would receive our death even though neither deserved the other thing. The scandal is there, whether we want it to be or not. And so often we try to dress up the gospel. We, we, we try to pretend and we try to make it pretty, but it's, it's really quite unfair. Now, God does it though. He does it anyways. Ruth submits to her mother-in-law, even though this plan seems rather scandalous. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. She came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. That's one of those understatements in Scripture. I would be startled too, right? This is a surprise, And he pretty quickly grasps the scandal of the situation. Ruth understands this difficult thing that Naomi has asked her to do. But do you and I grasp that that same scandal's at work in our redemption? I don't know that we do. You and I both know that in order for justice to be served, the guilty must be punished. But you and I both know that if we're guilty of sins and if sin truly deserves death, which is what the word says, then we should die. We shouldn't live. So how, how in the world does God grant us life and call it justice? Because while you and I live in a world where everything is built on the idea of, you know, good gets good, bad gets bad, right? We're looking for fairness, we're looking for justice, we're looking for righteousness. We don't understand that underlying all of that reality is this reality. God didn't have to make you. God didn't have to make me. God didn't have to make anything. He lacked absolutely nothing. The mere fact that there is a creation at all, the mere fact that you are breathing is entirely due to the mercy of God. Justice is a vital concept, 
But that justice is built on the fact that God has already given of himself what he did not have to give. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia hits the nail on the head with this one. He, He talks about this idea that there would be a deeper magic. If you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, let me give you just a, a brief background. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably one of the, my favorite books ever. And in that book, you have these children who find themselves in the land of Narnia, and there's this Messiah Christ figure whose name is Aslan, and, and he's a lion, and one of the children betrays the others, And the penalty for betrayal is death. But Aslan steps in and he takes the punishment that Edmund deserves. And he dies. And Edmund's sisters are there and they see this sacrifice. They see Aslan die for their brother, die in the traitor's stead, even though Aslan had betrayed no one. And they're mourning his death. And then the sun rises and Aslan does too. He comes back to life. And they're confused. They say, we don't understand. And Susan asks him, what does this all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little bit farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. If you want to memorize anything, memorize the Bible, okay? But if you finish that, or or you want to put something else in your memory banks, death itself working backwards. That's what Christ's sacrifice does. The scandal of redemption is is not a violation of the principles of justice and fairness and rightness. It is instead an affirmation of what God built into creation from the beginning. He didn't need us, but he loved us anyways. We deserve death, but he gives us life anyways. All of reality is based on God's grace. Redemption is a scandal to us, but it is God's deepest desire for us. It looks to us like unfairness or injustice, but to him, it looks like the reason for the creation of the world, that he might redeem that which does not deserve redemption. How do we get it? How do we get that redemption? Ruth goes, lies down, midnight, Boaz is startled. He turns over, there lying at his feet is a woman. So he asks, who are you? Well, now he knew Ruth, but here's the funny thing about night. It's dark, right? He can see a shape, but he doesn't know who it is. He says, I am Ruth, your servant. Okay, now, right there, right there. That's the appropriate response. That's the point at which she should be. She recognizes, I need redemption. I bring nothing to the table for redemption. We're in this very scandalous position right now. Look, you can't see me, I'm Ruth, and I'm your servant. That idea of servanthood is something that everything in our American bones rebels against. Everything in us does not like that idea, and yet Ruth embodies it, and she, in humility, says, who am I? 
I'm your servant. Who am I? I don't deserve to be here. Who am I? I don't deserve your recognition at this moment. That is a deep humility. And if Ruth would have stopped there, that's all we would have seen. But she doesn't. I'm Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Ruth goes from incredible humility to an almost unbelievable boldness. Here she is, the field laborer. Here she is, a woman. Here she is, a foreigner. Here she is, a Moabite. I'm your servant. Marry me anyways. That's the paraphrased version of what she just said. I have nothing to offer. I need redemption. I have nothing to offer. This is a scandalous situation. I'm humble, but boldly, Boaz, take me under your wing. Now she's quoting Boaz back to him. In chapter two, he told her that, right? Like, like I'm glad to bless you because you have come to the most high. You've come to Yahweh. You've taken shelter under his wing. And now she says, now you be the instrument of that. You be the instrument of that. Spread your wing over me. Redeem me. Marry me. This is a marriage proposal from somebody who has no standing whatsoever to somebody who is a righteous and a wealthy man. That's boldness. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, when we come to him, what we're doing is we are doing the exact same thing. We come and we say, Jesus, I need redemption. I bring nothing to table for that redemption. I recognize that it is even scandalous for me to even be here and to presume upon the fact that you might grant it. And yet, I will gladly call you Lord. In other words, calling ourselves servant to humble ourselves. But then to ask, but then to ask, save me anyways. Save me anyways. That is a bold thing to do. It is, it is not pride, though, that leads Ruth to do it. It's not pride that leads us to ask Jesus to redeem us. It is boldness because he's already shown us that's what he wants to do. We're told that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and eternal life. And so when we go to him and we say, I don't deserve it, but please give it, we can be both humble and bold at the same time, knowing that in our humility, we're only asking for what he's already said he's willing to give. Ruth says, hey, would you do this? And in that day and age, that would have just blown everybody's mind if they saw it. Nobody would have grasped what exactly she was doing. But Boaz does. In her humility and in her bold request, he sees a confirmation of his own desires. Sees a confirmation of his own desires. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You've shown more kindness now. By the way, that word kindness is chesed. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. You've shown more kindness now than before because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say. Now, Naomi told, her, told Ruth, do whatever Boaz says. And now Boaz is saying, I'll do whatever you say. So really, who's in charge, you three? Come to a plan. Get something together. I'll do whatever you say. Now, don't be afraid. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. 
Yes, it's true, I'm a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him do so. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will now lie down till morning. What's Ruth done? She stepped out humbly and boldly. She's, she's come recognizing her utter inability to do anything for herself and Boaz's response to her, just wait, just wait. He says, just wait. Ruth, even though you've come and even though this is my desire as well, understand this, patience is probably still gonna be required. You're gonna have to wait. Ruth, even though I want to redeem you and even though you've asked for redemption, you're still dependent on mercy. You're still dependent on this time to pass. Boaz's response proves his character, but it also shows us something of the reality facing Ruth. You don't know that this is going to work out the way that you want it to work out. You are still dependent on mercy for redemption. There's no guarantees here. Or is there? Is there? Look at this, look at verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's concerned for her reputation. He told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into town. When she went into town, she went into her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything that the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now at this point, Ruth is probably confused. Naomi asked, what's, what's going on, Ruth? Well, he said he wants to redeem me, but there's another who might be closer, and, and, but he gave me these, you know, 30 pounds of barley, right? And what's this all mean? And Naomi says, don't worry. He's not gonna rest until it's accomplished. We're dependent on mercy for our redemption, we're dependent on mercy for our redemption. We don't demand redemption of God. Our boldness is not such that we go to him and say, you must do this. We go and we, we ask, would you do this? We don't presume upon it. In Christmas time, we give gifts. Gifts are great until they become demands. Moms and dads, you know that. How much joy do you get on Christmas morning watching your kids open their presents? How much frustration or anger do you feel when they look at you and say, but I wanted a, why are there not more? The same thing is true for our relationship with God. Look, we are assured of redemption. We are dependent on mercy for redemption, but look at this. It's not something we demand. Our relationship with God is not one where, you know, we've, we've kind of got the upper hand, like he wants to redeem us, we need redemption, so come on, God, show up and do your thing. Well, not that way. Oh, hold on, I don't like this part of it. Nope, do it this way, do it a different way. That's not our, that's not our place. We can boldly ask for redemption, but we don't demand it. 
Just like a gift that's demanded isn't really a gift, it's a bribe, ransom demand. No, God owes us nothing. Boaz says, I'll redeem you, but I might not be able to. I might not be the one. God doesn't look at us and say, I might not be able to redeem you. I might not be the one, but that doesn't mean we can still go to him and demand it. We go humbly, we go boldly, and we say, Lord, please. And then we wait. We wait for that redemption. We wait for redemption. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. Now, Advent is all about waiting, right? When we, when we light these candles one a week, what we're doing is we're just reminding ourselves of the process that God's people had to go through for years, where they knew that God had promised redemption. From Genesis 3.15 on, they knew redemption was coming, they didn't exactly know how, they didn't exactly know where, they didn't ex even know who. They had some ideas, they had some guidelines, but they were, they were in the dark, waiting. Advent is a time where we try to enter into that, but it's, it's kind of hard for me to do that. It's kind of hard for me to put myself in their shoes because we live 2,000 years after Jesus' redemption's here, y'all. Like, like Jesus already showed up and everything changed and as much as we try to remind ourselves of that waiting, like four weeks is just not going to put us in the right frame of mind. One candle a week is not gonna teach us the endless cycle of years that Israel waited for their redeemer. But you know what will remind you of that? Confessing Christ and then living your life. Recognizing that yes, you've been redeemed, yes, you've been changed, but there's a process that goes through for that to become reality in your life, for what has happened inside of you to be reflected to the world around you, for, for the Christ who is in you to be seen by the people who are outside of you. That process is slow and it takes time. Anybody here feel like you've arrived? Like every day, every thought, every word, it's just Jesus all the time. Nobody sees any sort of anger. Nobody sees any sort of impatience from you. Nobody hears any gossip from you, right? Every interaction you have with every single person is just Jesus all the time. I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but I'm, I still don't see any hands being raised. Redemption is real. What Jesus has done, what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross, where he says, it is finished, it's finished. But we're still waiting for it to take its full effect. Not only that, as we grow in grace, as Christ becomes more and more coming out of us in every interaction that we have, we recognize that even then, even as we grow in Christ, even as we are more and more sanctified, we live in a world that is just, for lack of a better way of putting it, an absolute mess. We, we look around at the world and we're like, why are things this way? Crime this, politics that, war there, tornadoes here. Why is the world this way? Paul says that even creation itself is groaning, eagerly awaiting the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. 
So even as we receive redemption, even as God mercifully grants it to us, recognize we have to wait for its reality to bear out in our life and for its reality to be seen in the world. When we pray, how are we supposed to pray? Jesus' disciples asked him that, right? Lord, teach us to pray. He said, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not there yet, guys. We live after the first coming, but we live before the second coming. And until then, we're in this position of waiting for redemption. The question is, what kind of people are we going to be? How do you think Ruth waited? How do you think she's waiting here? My daughter, don't just wait, find out how things go. He won't rest until he resolves this. Do you think Ruth was nervous? Do you think she was a little bit anxious? Or do you think that she said, hey, the grain he gave me is just proof that he's going to do what he said he's going to do? Right? That's how Naomi interprets it. She's like, just don't stress, don't worry. The fact that he gave you this grain, this is him saying, I will pay the bride price. Not that he was purchasing Ruth. This is just an honest portrayal to Naomi. Look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of her. That's why Naomi's not stressed. Ruth's not stressed. How about you? You see the mess going on in the world? What's your spirit like? Are you responding with faith? God said he's going to return and I'm praying for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you come across your own sinfulness, when you come across that lack of sanctification in yourself, what what is your response then? Is your response, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, there'll never be any change? Or is your response, wait, God gave me a spirit. And while I may not yet see the full effect of redemption, I know that he is at work. He who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion. Our task in the meantime is to wait in hope, to wait for the ultimate reality of redemption to be seen. Let's pray.